Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of Communication Mixdown. I'm John Langer, still broadcasting remotely in the middle of another Melbourne COVID lockdown. What do you know about something called deliberative democracy? Well, here's a confession. I didn't really know anything about it myself, but my hunch was that communication had a lot to do with it. You can't deliberate without communicating in one way or another. My other hunch was that With the global rise of populism, a landscape of broken political systems and deep social and cultural divisions, deliberative democracy might be an idea and a set of practices worth investigating. And that's what led me to our guest this week. Nicole Corrado is Associate Professor in the Center for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra. She's been studying, writing, and advocating for deliberative democracy over many years. She's the author of a book entitled Democracy in a Time of Misery, From Spectacular Tragedies to Deliberative Action, and another book entitled Power in Deliberative Democracy, Norms, Forums, Systems. I was able to speak with her by phone a few days ago. I'd like to start with some scene setting, if you wouldn't mind. I would like to ask you, what is deliberative democracy and why do we need to think about it now? So in a nutshell, I would explain deliberative democracy as a vision. It's a political vision for societies to be sensitive to good reasons. And I know that kind of sounds naive because isn't politics about propaganda, spin, manipulation, partisanship. Well, yes, that's exactly the problem with our politics right now. It's driven by these practices that are not good for democracy. So deliberative democracy um, offers a vision of political practice, which places communication at the heart of how we do politics. In its more traditional description, actually, it's described as a talk-centric rather than a vote-centric understanding of democracy. And the idea is that if we talk to people who are not like us, people who come from a diverse set of backgrounds, and if we exchange reasons with these people, and if we think in other regarding terms, and we do this discussion respectfully, then we can come up with better decisions. Then our societies are responsive to good reasons. Tell me about this idea of mini publics, because uh, I read that they are, that's a very important part of deliberative democracy. And why why are mini-publics important? So I know the term mini-public sounds a bit awkward, like mini-publics, what is that? So basically, um, it's a term that describes 
a process, a deliberative process, if you want to put it that way, where a microcosm of the population is put together in the same room, although now it can also be a Zoom room. Um, so it's a diverse set of people. That's why it's called mini public. It's a small, it's a microcosm, mini populace um, coming from different backgrounds that represents the demographic or sometimes discursive profile of a city, a country, or even a community. Uh, and the idea is that this forum is designed so people can first acquire credible information so they can learn about the issue to kind of break through the fake news, disinformation, and propaganda taking place um, in the wider public sphere. And then, so they have access to experts. Usually, they're given a charge or a problem that they're supposed to deliberate on. And usually, this takes place, some do it in a day, but some people say it's more ideal to do it at least three days where there are structured discussions for them to exchange reasons about their preferences, for them to reflect on their preferences, and in the end, either come up with a set of recommendations for, for example, um, policymakers, or some do it in companies even. Um, and that is based on this process of deliberation in that mini public. There are many examples, actually, some people might think, has that ever occurred in the real world? The answer is actually yes. Yeah, that was, we... actually, that was actually my, my very next question to help us with the scene setting. Uh, where would you find some of these examples and uh, as successful examples of deliberative democracy? Where are they at work? So right now, the flavor of the month for deliberative democracy scholars is what happened in France. They just recently concluded a citizens' assembly on climate change. So President Macron himself, reacting to the Yellow Vest protest, um, convened um, a group of French citizens, I think there's 150 of them, um, and gave them the mandate to decide what the uh, climate change policy of France should be. And so they deliberated over the course of months. It, they even deliberated during the pandemic socially distanced. And just recently, this forum of, of randomly selected uh, French citizens recommended uh, ecocide to be considered a crime, which is, I think, a quite a, a quite a powerful recommendation, right? And the idea here is that the decision that they came up with is not necessarily binding. Actually, what they want to do is to have a referendum on some of their recommendations. So it's not as if we are bypassing uh, the systems of representative democracy. The idea is that this citizens' assembly gives input to the broader public conversation. And the idea is that if we put people in a, in a system or in a forum where all the bad practices of communication are designed out of it, this is how people think. So that's a big example. It happened on the national level. But I've actually got news for you because when OECD did a tally of deliberative mini publics taking place all over the world, Australia actually ranked first. We have the most number of mini publics, but we are tied with Germany. So I think we have to beat this tie, right? Um, but this takes place on the local level. So sometimes they call it a citizen's jury. For example, um, they, they also do citizens panels. Usually this takes place on issues related to urban planning or um, policies on, um, uh, that are directly related to, to local issues. So that's probably why it's not gaining as much traction as it is in Europe, because a lot of these processes are done uh, on the small scale. So in Canberra, for example, we had a citizen's jury on third party insurance. I mean, if you think about it, it's such a boring, obscure topic 
but sometimes these boring obscure topics are also useful for deliberation because people don't have a preconceived bias yet on the topic mm. the the other thing i've read about is that uh many publics as you're talking about work in deeply divided societies i i, I read there was examples for uh in in northern ireland uh, as one example in colombia as another example uh could you talk to a little bit about those those sorts of uh deliberations that take place in co conflicted societies. Yeah, I'm glad you raised the example of Colombia because this is actually one of my favorite examples. So my colleague Jörg Steiner um, and others convened uh, a series of deliberations among former combatants, paramilitar pa paramilitaries and ex-rebels. So people who literally used to shoot at each other and as part of that reconciliation process, uh, they created a system where they can actually exchange stories and learn about each other uh, as part of that healing process. And it's proven to be effective. Um, in the context of uh, Northern Ireland, my, my colleague Ian O'Flynn actually convened a series of mini publics about the school system. And you would think that, uh, that citizens would actually have conflicting views about school systems. But what they did was to frame this mini public a as a discussion among parents, like regardless of what your views are in terms of religious divisions, we are all here as parents. And in fact, in Ireland, um, this also happened when they ch tried to have a, a citizen's assembly uh, on abortion. Um, so this is part of the process of changing the constitution. And you would think that uh, in a very conservative Ireland, there will be people who are pro and against it. It's a deeply divisive issue. But what the Citizens' Assembly actually revealed is that people's opinions are still divided, but they reached what we call a meta-consensus. So people in that discussion realized that, okay, maybe even if I still don't think abortion is morally good, I respect the other people's views, especially other women who had to leave the country to get an abortion. We respect their views that they should have access to the service. And so they recommended that, that was subject to a referendum and the constitution was changed um, in relation to, to that process. So yeah, it does work in, in contexts of deep division. Now in my rather preliminary way of understanding the idea of deliberative democracy, as you pointed out a little bit earlier, I, I would say also that communication is really central to the whole process. Where does communication fit in all this? Because, for example, you've written uh, deliberative democracy is talk centric. You mentioned that already. But deliberation is not discussion. What are you getting at here? So deliberation is a more particular form of discussion because it has some requirements when it comes to how that discussion is enforced. So for example, deliberation requires reflection. It requires attentive listening. We can have a discussion, but I don't pay attention. We can have a discussion, but I'm not committed to listen and understand your views. So deliberation in that sense is a bit more imposing in terms of the obligations that we owe each other as citizens. And I think this is a particularly powerful demand um, for, for today's societies. Um, some deliberative Democrats would say that the crisis of democracy today is a crisis of communication, right? This is why there are populist leaders all over the world, because there is some deficits with the way we talk to each other. So that is what's different uh, with deliberation and discussion. Deliberation has, I guess, more demanding commitments from its participants. Now, again, from my understanding that there's a process in deliberative democracy where, as you mentioned earlier, it's talk-centric. You want people to talk, 
but the talk takes many different forms. And uh, one of the ways you and your colleagues have put it is deliberative democracy involves multiple forms of communication. Tell me, what are those multiple forms of communication that you're talking about? Yes, because in its original conceptualization, deliberative democracy was accused of feminist scholars, for example, for valorizing the gentlemanly forms of speech, you know, as if people were arguing in a court. Is that the ideal form of speech? And so deliberative theorists uh, actually said, you know what, you're right. We should also honor other forms of speech that do not follow that kind of discussion. So maybe some women, for example, are, are more at home with the genre of a testimony, of telling a story, of giving her personal perspectives, and implicit in that process of talking about one's perspective um, are arguments that we should consider. So I think if we think about, let's say, um, Black Lives Matter and Me Too movements, um, these are taking place not through reasoned discussion that's very structured, but these are taking place through very creative, passionate, collective forms of communication. So that may not necessarily be deliberation with the typical way that we conceptualize it uh, in the same way that I talked about many publics, but the argument is that this also is important for our deliberative democracy because for deliberative democracy to thrive, we should be able to listen to arguments that are unfamiliar to us. And the way that can happen is if forms of communication that people use are are legible, are, are relatable to other people. So that's why we had to we we felt like we have to broaden the way we we conceptualize what good communication looks like. Again, could I ask you for an an example of of the sort of things that you're talking about, or a couple of examples of the sort of things you're talking about? Where where would they take place? Right. So, for example, for a long time, deliberative democracy has been held in contrast uh, to protests because you don't expect activists to change their minds and be open-minded. There's a reason why they're activists. They are really committed to a particular view. Um, so that's one part of it. But we can also say that activist communication can contribute to deliberative democracy if it broadens the perspective of privileged people whose views have, have been prevalent for a long time. So I think this is why, for example, the George Floyd video was so powerful because it's a very vivid description of police brutality. Um, if we say police brutality is happening in the US, I have some statistics, we need institutional reform. That has been the discourse for a long time, but it never really shifted anything in the United States. But now that that video exists, and now that that video is amplified by um, activists as well as um, allies, then that argument is stronger, then the argument for police reform is stronger, then how we imagine alternative forms of policing um, become stronger, we generate more ideas. I mean, it's only now that the discussion of, ab of ab uh, abolishing the police is, is part of the discussion. This was unimaginable before, but now this is a new kind of idea that has entered the mainstream, and that happened because of these creative protests. You're with Communication Mixdown, and I'm talking with Nicole Carato. She's an associate professor in the Center for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra. Back after this. So, here you are. Too foreign for home. Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo. Diaspora Blues. 
What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. Something else that I've read about uh, in, in relation to deliberative democracy, I'll just give, a, again, a quote to, to you. Productive deliberation is plural, not consensual. Why is this important and how does communication play a part in all this? And maybe give us a couple of illustrations to, to, uh, to expand on this. So in the original conceptualization of deliberative democracy, reaching consensus was considered an ideal where everyone's preferences and views align after discussion. And then we realized that actually uh, consensus may not necessarily be a good thing. Some would even say that once people reach consensus, then that means it's the end of politics. So what deliberative democracy now advocates is that even after deliberations, people can still not agree. People can still have different opinions, but at least with my interpretation, what's important is we reach a workable agreement, meaning we agree of what to do together as a society, even if we have different reasons for doing that. So if I may go back to the example of abortion debates in Ireland, um, people in that deliberative forum did not necessarily have to change their religious beliefs. They can still be very conservative Catholics, but they reached uh, a meta consensus, meaning they understand the range of legitimate reasons that people have and make a workable agreement, which is to legalize abortion, even if they still have disagreements with that policy. Now, a couple of years ago, a, a while back, you co-wrote an interesting article in the conversation. It was entitled Deliberative Democracy Must Rise to the Threat of Populist Rhetoric. Now, for me, when you're framing things around the notion of rhetoric, you're actually talking about communication. I was wondering, what were you trying to point out in that particular article around the question of populism and around populist rhetoric? Yeah, so actually, this is very much inspired uh, by my own fieldwork in the Philippines, which is a country that has its own populist leader who's been notorious for his misogynistic remarks. And I think, you know, these kinds of leaders are very much present in Brazil, in the United States and all over the world. And so I was kind of reflecting, why is it that at a time when deliberative democracy uh, is taking off as well all around the world, it's also the time when populism is also taking off in different parts of the world? How can we reconcile these two parallel trends? And I think uh, my realization there is because maybe there are still some voices that deliberative democracy is uncomfortable welcoming uh, in the deliberative space. So what do I mean? When we talk about mini publics, for example, what we actually glorify here is the view of an average reasonable person. But what about the views of an extreme person? What about climate deniers? What about people who actually believe in racial supremacy? What is the home of these voices in deliberative democracy? So to me, this is very much still an open question in the field. Some people would say deliberation, for you to be part of deliberation, there has to be preconditions. You have to promise to be open-minded. You have to promise to be respectful. But a lot of people don't want to change their minds. They don't want to be respectful. How can we change our communicative landscape when views are hardened, when 
when these biases and prejudices still exist. So for me, the ethos of that piece that you mentioned, deliberative democracy must rise to populist rhetoric, um, is that we have to recognize the allure of populism. And the allure of populism is that it gives voices to the unspeakable, the deepest, darkest, most racist, most bigoted thoughts, right? So how do we process that as a society? Um, and I think that is still an, an open-ended question until now, and very much so in the field. Mm. Something else that I've, I've come across, and you obviously are very, very familiar with, is deliberative democracy is not without its critics, And as, as I've been reading. And one of the things they say is that it tends to be too utopian in its formation and its in its aims, and it's too ungrounded in the real world of politics and power and privilege. Could you briefly respond to that and, and give, a, give a comment as well? One of my favorite anecdotes is um, it's, she's my friend who does populism research. And she said, you know, Nicole, I started my academic career as a deliberative Democrat. And then I realized that I don't really like it. I want to take power. Enough of this communication. I need to take power. And so she studied populism. Um, but I think that anecdote is a reminder that sometimes we don't really talk about um, the real, real politique, right? When we talk about deliberative democracy, that's why I wrote a book with two of my colleagues about power in deliberative democracy. And in writing that book, uh, what we realized is that actually uh, the foundations of deliberative democracy is really about redistributing our power to communicate. Because one of the scarcest resource in societies right now It's not just the power to speak up. Everyone can speak up. Anyone with a Twitter account, everyone with a TikTok account can speak up. But what's unevenly distributed is attention. Um, it's, it's listening that's not equally distributed. Some people have louder megaphones. So the puzzle now is how can we reform societies that can move, that can move, how, that can move the way we communicate to a deliberative direction. So that's why many publics always comes up as an example of deliberative democracy in action. But it's not only that. There are many spaces for reform where deliberative ethics can actually take root. So, for example, the obvious space of parliamentary debates can actually be a space of reform for deliberative democracy. One study actually demonstrates that a two-party system is actually, or the Westminster model of the parliament is actually not conducive for deliberative democracy. When governments are divided between government and opposition, of course, the opposition's role is to oppose. How can we have meaningful debates among politicians where reflection is encouraged, where changing one's mind is a sign of strength, not of weakness? But compare that to other political systems that are more driven by consensus, systems that have more political parties that operate based on coalitions. So the study found that um, political systems organized in this manner actually have higher quality parliamentary debates because it's not just a case of government versus opposition. So that's one side of reform. If we think about how parliamentary politics works, maybe we should think about how our, how our party systems are organized. And rather underdeveloped, but I think this is really important, is how we can design Um, our media to privilege deliberative norms. A lot of our communication now is dictated by algorithms. It's dictated by clickbait. And so we can say that the digital communication is not really conducive for deliberation. So there is a debate in the field, actually, uh, that thinks about 
algorithms that promote reason giving, yes. algorithms that promote intelligent thinking. Is that possible or is that also anti-democratic? So in my own work, I also do some media work and I've encountered uh, producers who ask me, so you've been talking about deliberative democracy a lot. How can you design a deliberative talk show? And I'm like, oh my God, I have no answer. Mm -hmm. But it's an opportunity to say, how can we design um, content in, in digital times that can promote these values? So I don't know, maybe your listeners have some <laughs> suggestions on how we can create formats of television uh, that can actually promote these values. That was Associate Professor in the Center for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra, Nicole Carato. And we've been talking about deliberative democracy and how it intersects with various dimensions of communication. That's all from Communication Mixed Down this week. The podcast of this show and all our other shows are on the 3CR Communication Mixed Down website. Back again next time at 6 p.m. on Monday. Speak to you then. Let's go out with Leonard Cohen and his little take on democracy.
Democracy is coming to the USA. 